Hey friends, this is Allie Simmons and Maggie Law, and we are hosts of the Happy Mom Podcast. We are relatable, joyful, and real working moms. This podcast was created because we wanted a sunny spot to uplift and support each other. It's just like a phone call with your best friend that you haven't caught up with in a few months. Join us as we discuss momming, wifing, parenting, working, and everything in between with a smile on our face and a cup of coffee in our hands. So let's get into it and find our happy. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the Happy Mom Podcast. This is Maggie Law Buhacker, and I've got my beautiful co-host, Allie, here. Um, we are so excited to have a reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist doctor um, on our podcast today. Her name is Dr. Sukamal Campbell. Um, she is an infertility specialist here in Birmingham, where I live. Um, and we actually connected via Instagram Um I talked a little bit about this on the podcast before, but I am actually, I've, uh, both of my children are uh, infertility babies. They are both from frozen embryo transfers. And I did all my infertility work at UAB where um, Dr. Campbell practices, but I think we literally, we just missed each other. I think when um, you'll have to talk about when you joined at UAB, Dr. Campbell, um, but so we just missed each other and we've connected online and I feel like we, um, we have so much in common and she's got two adorable little boys and she loves her work and she loves, you know, wearing her fun earrings to work, like how I like my fun headbands. And, um, she's just a wealth of knowledge. And so infertility is such an important topic for women, um, our age, uh, you know, in their thirties and, you know, even earlier in twenties and, so without further ado, Dr. Campbell, tell us a little bit about yourself, what your family looks like, all the things. Awesome. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. And I think it's so cool that, you know, we can connect through social media these days and meet new friends. Um, I am from Alabama. I grew up in Huntsville and then I did all my training and everything at UAB. I was there for 12 years before we um, left to go to Houston for my fellowship in reproductive endocrinology. We were there for three years and then we came back, um, last July. So in July of 2020 back to Birmingham. Um, and I've been at UAB now about a year I've been back. I started in September of 2020. So it's good to be back. It feels like, you know, coming back home, um, both to the city, but also back to UAB feels like home, um, just from knowing so many people there and having connections. So that's great. I'm, I'm glad to be back. Um, I have two little boys, like you mentioned, Runbeer is five and he's in kindergarten and Shiv is turning two next week. So it's Aww. busy, but so fun. Um, yeah, my little girl turned two this week. So it's a fun age. Love it. Yeah. So fun. They're so sassy and, you know, have their personalities already by the time they're like two years old. Isn't that it's crazy? Fun. I know. And how and different her- siblings can be. Exactly. And so her crazy. little boy like plays soccer and like all the things. So, oh, oh my gosh, all um, the so things. You are a you. I call myself a UAB lifer. I did not do my undergrad at UAB, <laughs> but I did dental and ortho, and then I've had both my babies there. And so, I call myself a UAB lifer. But you are a true UAB yeah. lifer. Um, I love UAB. I think it's the place to be. Tell us about. Um, so you've talked a little bit about where you did your training and stuff. So tell us a little bit about. Um, you know why you wanted to become a doctor at what point in medical school did you feel the calling for obstetrics and gynecology and then i'm guessing somewhere along the way you felt called to infertility because 
you know, I think anybody that uh, goes to school, as long as you do to become a physician, you know, you have to be passionate about it. And um, I always think to myself, I'm I'm grateful. I'm just, I'm I'm a dentist. It's just teeth and you don't have to, you know, deal with some of the um, high pressure situations that you have to deal with and in some real sad moments. And um, so tell us a little bit about how you got here. Yeah. Um, so I decided, I guess, to become a doctor, I feel like probably high school. Um, I have two older brothers there. One is 15 years older than me. And one is 18 years older. And my mom had me when she was like 43, 42 or 43 conceived naturally, you know, thinking she's going through menopause and had was pregnant. Um, what a surprise Yeah. (laughs) when she had, you know, two boys, one in high school and one starting college. And they, so they've been really influential in my life. You know, my, Mm -hmm. they, my brothers were kind of like my cool parents, like my parents are older and they're also Indian, you know, immigrated here. And so there's some cultural differences and my brothers were like hip. So they would, (laughs) um, I don't know. I really look up to them and they are both physicians. One of them is an OBGYN and one of them is a trauma surgeon. And so I kind of, you know, followed around, followed them around a lot. I like was always around them and we would take vacations to go see them all the time. And Um, so they introduced me to medicine and I really, I just, that's when I started thinking about becoming a doctor. I think also partially because I feel like there, there was this stigma almost of like women shouldn't be physicians because they need to spend, they need to be moms or they need to, you know, focus on their families or whatever. And I've felt that maybe culturally through my family. And so it was almost like, you know, I really like this and I think I can do it. Like I wanted to prove it to them, but also to myself. Um, that that was one of the reasons I guess that I became a doctor and then I chose OBGYN because let's see, I really liked surgery, but I don't know. It's grueling. I feel like oftentimes with surgery, you like do the surgery and then you never see the patient again. Yeah. Um, With OBGYN, you have a little bit more long-term like continuity of care and it's rewarding. It's exciting. You see women at kind of like this very vulnerable stage, but it's super happy most of the time. Yeah. And then when I was in residency, I started realizing like the further and further I got, you know, OB is crazy. OB is like the most unpredictable <laughs> thing in the world. Um, lots of, lots of bad things happen and you really have no yeah. control over it, right? Like you can do all the right things and still you may have a bad outcome and that's really hard, um, mm-hmm. like mentally to handle it's, it can be very trying and I feel so bad for those women, you know, and you just can't do thing, anything about it sometimes. Um, and I remember at the time, my cousin, who's like one of my best friends, they, him and his wife were going through infertility and I started kind of like learning about it through their journey. I had never thought about infertility before. And even at UAB, even though we're exposed to it pretty often, I feel like I wasn't committed to it. I didn't know much about it, but I learned more about it through my like family members journey, um, and realized, you know, the, the thing that stood out the most is that the women who go through infertility or the couples that go through infertility are like the most committed patients you're ever going to meet, you know, they will do anything literally compliant, right? Yeah. The compliance (laughs) is like unreal, which is a huge, the non-compliance and OBGYN sometimes can be like a huge burnout factor, you know, and you've done all these things and you try and do the best for your patient. And there's like, whatever, I don't care. not doing it. That, that can be frustrating, but I felt this like compelling compliance. Like they're always willing to do whatever you tell them. And it's so rewarding to get to be so like intimately involved with them, you know, on this journey. And I feel like at the end, you're kind of part of their family, um, mm-hmm. you know, as you go through this process. So that's how so, I, ended up I love that. I mean, 
when I was trying to figure out what to do, I was between, and I know these are so unrelated orifices, but between dentistry and OB, (laughs) but Um, I, I, for some reason, I always wanted to like be there for delivery. I don't know why, like it's on my bucket list. I know that is the weirdest thing to have on a bucket list, It's fun, but just like the that experiencing that, like how precious life is and just seeing like, you that mean like, breath. you mean like witness somebody else's delivery? Well, right. <laughs> not from, and not from my point of view from the top. Right. Exactly. That is so cool. Um, I will I, say I know, too, I will say now that I've, now that I have two kids, I feel like, you know, before you have children, you're very intimidated by birth and it's just a very scary, I think pregnancy is a very scary thing. And even when you go through it again, it, it it's, it's still scary, but there's just so many unknowns. But then once I, I had a baby, like the actual birthday, literally like best, two, the two best, two of the absolute best days of my life, obviously when I married my husband, but I mean, once you know you're pregnant and you're about to have that baby, I mean, like I am like excited. Like, I mean, yeah. it's just the coolest, coolest day. It's like your Super Bowl. Yeah, yeah, it is like a Super Bowl. Um, I I have to say too, she's got her hot pink scrubs on. She's gorgeous. And do you oh remember? I just saw this recently. Do you did you ever watch Scrubs, the show? Yes. Do you remember the episode where like the OB girls were like the hot ones? Oh my gosh. I don't remember that, but I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, but I can I just imagine you, you like walking down the, the hallway at the hospital with the, with the cool girls. <laughs> Thank um, you. Someone called me a pink lady today, whatever that means. I, I like, love okay. it. I know I'll that's such it. a, that is like the, one of the biggest compliments in my book. You're, you look like the Elle Woods of um, infertility today. Oh, yeah. Um, love it. Let's okay. Let's talk a little mm-hmm. bit about when somebody should come and see the infertility doctor. Cause you know, there's lots of kind of myths out there and people are like, Oh, well you have to be over the age of 35 or, Oh, it's after you've been trying for X number of months. So tell us a little bit about what, who would be your ideal patient that you'd love to chat with in your office? I think it's a good question. Cause people get, um, like you said, mixed information oh. and there's kind of, there's like definitions, right? Like some people say infertility is not, you're not infertile until you've been trying for a year with regular intercourse and regular cycles and, you know, ovulation and all of those things for a year, if you're under the age of 35 or six months, if you're over the age of 35, or if you have some like known diagnosis, you know, that you're say you were born without a uterus, or you just know that there's something going on, then you can, you know, maybe expedite that evaluation. Um, personally, I feel like that's not helpful to have those cutoffs. You know, I think if someone is starting along the fertility journey and they're worried or they want more answers, I'm all about getting more knowledge to them early in the game, because that's only helpful, right? Like if let's say we discover something that we didn't know existed, it would be really helpful to know about that now, rather than a year, you know, next year when you're a year older and you've gone through so many trials and stress and all that waiting on, you know, finding, waiting to get to the doctor. Um, so I think it's, I'm totally fine seeing people that are curious about their fertility, maybe that aren't even interested in being pregnant, but just want to know more about their fertility health and be proactive gaining knowledge about it. Um, I think that's an appropriate person to come see a fertility doctor. I don't think you always have to abide by the strict definitions. It's so um, nice to hear. I, I have so many friends that have gone through IVF and I was at an event last night and someone told me an astronomical number of just how much of an investment it is. So say like my husband and I are like, okay, we're getting into IVF. What's, what should we like plan for? I know everybody's different, but like, what do you kind of prepare your patients for? As they um, go down the journey of IVF? Right. 
So I, I like to think of it kind of in, it's like three separate things, right? There's this physical aspect. So I try to, you know, go through that with them. Like there will be injections. They're not like vaccinations. They're subcutaneous injections. You're going to have to learn how to give them to yourself. So that's like one hurdle, you know, that, that people need to know about and kind of have to understand and be okay with as they approach IVF. There's injections, you give them to yourself. There's lots of ultrasounds. Like every couple of days, you're going to have an ultrasound over this two week period. So that may be six or seven ultrasounds, you know, that you're coming in for frequent appointments, frequent lab draws. And then there's like the financial aspect of it. So, which is very significant, you know, there's high success with IVF, but there's also a very large financial component. And that comes from the medications because they're their hormones, their injections. So they have to be from a specialty pharmacy. So that's like thousands of dollars, $5,000, you know, ballpark. And then the procedure to remove your eggs and to inseminate the eggs and the genetic testing, all of those procedural things also cost a lot of money and there's anesthesia involved. So it's, you know, maybe five to 10,000 more dollars just for that part of it. So somewhere in the ballpark of 15 to 20,000 for one cycle, And you may end up with one embryo, or you may have multiple embryos that you could use for, you know, to complete your family and have all the siblings. And then finally, you know, not any less important is kind of the mental aspect of it. And just knowing, I feel like as a physician and controlling your fertility, I'm not the best probably at handling the mental aspect, but I acknowledge it. And I know that it's a very real portion of the um, fertility journey. And I like to tell my patients, you know, to find support, like find support groups or find a friend that's gone through it or get a coach, you know, do something to kind of proactively deal with the mental ramifications that may come along with this infertility journey and with IVF specifically. That's really good advice. I think when I went through it, the physical part was like, like not that for me, I guess, you know, having a dental background and I don't obviously do injections anymore as an orthodontist, but in dental school, you know, you have to numb people up. So that part wasn't bad. And I think I was so just excited that that part was, it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. And I actually was, I'm a stubborn person. So I actually did every single, I did not that my husband wouldn't have helped me. I mean, he totally wanted to help. He's a physician too, Mm -hmm. but I did all my injections, even my progesterone injections. I figured out how to do them by myself. I know I was like, I just, to, I guess to have that little bit of control. I mean, I like watched a YouTube video, like give yourself your own producer, (laughs) like figure (laughs) out how to like turn around and like, you know, do the whole Mm -hmm. thing. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree that those are some of the the big, big components with IVF, you know, the financial part. And I think our insurance covered some of the medications, but maybe only like two or $3,000. And a lot of it, you know, thankfully we were, you know, able to afford infertility treatment. And it's like, I feel like, um, orthodontics is a little bit the same way. Orthodontic insurance sucks. I mean, kind of all dental insurance does. I wish that there was more coverage. So more people could, be able to um, have a family. And then the mental part, I, um, I really, I felt very taken care of at UAB. I had a, um, you know, Dr. Gunn was my doctor Mm -hmm. and she was great. And then I had a fellow, I don't think you'll have fellows anymore, but I had a fellow who really took care of me and she just literally made me feel so at ease and so comfortable and just, I don't know. I I felt very well cared for so that, Mm -hmm. and I felt very well supported And the nursing staff at um, UAB was so great too, that I felt like I had, I had a lot of support. And whenever I'd come in the clinic, it was like exciting. Like everybody was like excited to see me and I was excited to see them. So it felt, 
it was a, it was, it was, it was joyful. Cause I knew we were getting one step closer to the goal of having children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm glad um, that you had such a good experience. Oh, you know, I did. I, I tell everybody that. about yeah. UAB. I'm like, you need to go to UAB. Um, talk a little <laughs> bit about um, what goes into creating a plan of action for your patients. I think a lot of people, you know, when they think of IVF, they only think of, um, you know, lots of shots and then like a, like an embryo transfer, but you know, there's things that you do before then. And, you know, you mm-hmm. do your blood work and your diagnostic test. So if, if you had a patient come in and you were just starting baseline, like tell mm-hmm. them what they would expect. Yeah. So I try to, um, kind of separate it into categories, you know, with my patients and go through one by one. So, so the different areas that we need to assess, we want to know about ovulation, right? Can you have to have regular ovulation in order to be able to conceive so that that's partially knowing about their menstrual history. And if they're having cycles, if they're tracking ovulation at home, things like that. Um, also, you know, under ovulation in my mind, I think about your ovaries and how many eggs you have. So your ovarian reserve or your AMH level, which is a blood test that we can check. And that will tell me, you know, what is your ovarian reserve? Do you have the appropriate number of eggs in your egg bank that you should have for someone who's 25 or someone who's 30, or do you have a low number of eggs or do you have tons and tons of eggs? Like someone who might have polycystic ovarian syndrome has a very good ovarian reserve, but there may be an ovulatory problem. So I kind of think of, you know, ovulation ovaries as one area. Number two would be the uterus. So, you know, the, the structure of the uterus, the uterine cavity, is it normal? Are there fibroids? Are there polyps? Are there structural things that could be barriers to a pregnancy? Is there a septum? Things like that, which we can assess both on ultrasound and also usually with like a 3d ultrasound, like a saline sonogram, which will help us assess the cavity better or an HSG, which is a hysterosalpingogram. That's like an x-ray test to, to tell us more about the uterine cavity and also about number three, which is your fallopian tubes. So we have to have fallopian tubes that are patent and functioning in order for the sperm and egg to meet. So I can assess your tubes on this x-ray test, the HSG test, which we do in combination with radiology. So we do the pelvic exam. They take the pictures for us and we inject some dye into the uterus and watch it kind of float through the tubes to see if they're open. And that test can be both diagnostic and telling us if there are issues with the tubes, but also therapeutic in the sense that there may be some fertility benefit. If we kind of flush the debris out of your tubes, like menstrual debris um, that could be blocked in the tubes can be flushed out. And then there could be some pregnancy benefit in the the months following the test. And then number four, you know, if the patient has a a partner, a male partner, then I want to know about sperm, or if they don't have a partner and they want to use donor sperm, you know, there has to be some sperm source. And so assessing sperm with their partner is important um, because, you know, 40% of the time the issue is male factor. So it's not really helpful if we're kind of focusing everything on the female partner and then ignoring the male partner. And this is just maybe my subjective impression, but I often find my female patients are so eager to be you know, they were like, literally poke me and prod me and do whatever you need to do today. I will do all the things I need answers and do it to me right now. I need, I need to know. And then, you know, often their, their partners are like hiding in the corner, not making eye contact with me. They do not want me to say one word about, you know, their, their part in this uh-huh. story. Not everyone, of course, that's, that's, a, that's being kind of stereotypical. I understand, but you know, that's, no, just, yeah, totally. that's just how it is sometimes. And I think it's important to 
evaluate both parties or or everyone involved kind of at the same time. So we have all the answers up front to make decisions. Well, and I would imagine that that would also lead you to see how their success rate would be, you know, mm-hmm. in the future too, right? Right. Yes. So let's say our, I think our average listeners are like 30 to 35. Mm-hmm. So what is like an average egg reserve and AMH level for that age group? So probably around, around one and a half to two um, is an, a normal AMH level. And there's lots of good, um, the American society of reproductive medicine has good like charts that we have, um, that I will sometimes show my patients to say like, this is, you know, this is what the average age AMH is. And this is kind of where you are. Um, you know, important numbers to remember would be if their AMH drops below one, then we consider that to be diminished ovarian reserve. And that can happen, you know, at any age, because, Men can make sperm forever. So they're lucky, right? They could be a hundred and have sperm. Women are, we're born with all the eggs we're ever going to have. And so as we age, we know that there's kind of this steady decline in our egg quality and also our egg quantity, but that the, the, the rate at which it drops is different for each person. And so for me, it could be like steady for five years and then drop off for someone else. It could be, you know, lower than we would expect for someone who's maybe 30 years old. It could be already low you know, approaching what it would for someone that's kind of around menopause. So that's why it's helpful to check out your AMH level and also to look at your ovaries on ultrasound to kind of count the number of eggs there and correlate those two things together to know more about ovarian reserve. Do you, so just coming from somebody that like, I have three kids, Mm -hmm. is there a benefit? Say I'm done having a family. Is there a benefit? Like, should I go in and say, Hey, every five years, can we look at this stuff just to make sure my numbers are, are healthy? Or is that not really pertinent if you're not going to have any more kids? I would say it's beneficial if you're having symptoms. So if you're not having any symptoms and you're having, you know, regular cycles, but they're not painful and you're just, everything's fine, you know, not no issues. And I don't think you need regular screening, but maybe, you know, the patient, um, women who maybe start having like hot flashes when they're younger, or they're noticing like hair loss or maybe hair growth. Like maybe I'm starting to have hair growth on my chin or I don't know, acne. What is that thing? Like that. Well, it's it's a hair on the chin. I know. I wish. What is that? Is that normal? Or does that mean something's off? It's, you know, it's related to fluctuations in like your estrogen level and maybe a little bit elevation in testosterone. So, you know, women that have polycystic ovarian syndrome will often have that, you know, chin hair, breast hair, hair on their belly, things like that in kind of a male pattern. But as we get older, we have less estrogen and the testosterone can sometimes be a little bit more dominant as your estrogen level is dropping. And so you'll notice, you know, maybe some older women have a couple of chin hairs. Um, so it's related to that, but things like that, I'll throw myself out there. I, my husband and I are like super into health. So we went Mm -hmm. and got a lot of like numbers done and and everything was fine. Thank thank goodness. But they said my progesterone was like of a 90 year old woman. And I've started Mm -hmm. to have like the chin hair and I'm 36. So that's why another question is like, again, if I'm closing, I'm not really in the the kids anymore. Let's say I'm done with that. Like what, what is my next step or somebody experiencing those weird, you know, symptoms? Yeah. I think it's, you know, important like you did to go get, get like your estrogen, testosterone, progesterone, there's a bunch of hormones, FSH, LH, there's all these different levels and it's helpful to get all of them. You know, sometimes thyroid can play a part in all this. It can, your thyroid being off can change your cycles and make you not have cycles or have heavy cycles. So it's helpful to kind of assess all the different hormones at the same time and then interpret them and, you know, come up with a plan because like you said, maybe fertility isn't your goal, but 
just having like a healthy life and feeling good is important and your hormones can affect all of that too. Cool. Um, okay. You are so thorough and organized. I love that you were like, these are like the three things that we talk about first. Like, <laughs> these are like the four things. Like that is oh. like how my brain functions. So I love this. I like lists. I'm a list person. Yes. I can totally tell. So <laughs> you've gone through the list. Like somebody's done all this work up. And then I know for me the you know, my plan was, you know, time dinner course and then some IUIs and then, mm-hmm. um, and then IVF. Now, obviously if you see something diagnostically along the way where, you know, an IUI wouldn't, if the person's not ovulating or maybe they have like a, some sort of an issue, you would, you would dive straight into IVF, but you do do, but though, could you talk just briefly about the things that you do before you have to get to IVF? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so that's, you know, a lot of that, a lot of our couples will just go through those treatments, which mm-hmm. are considered maybe less invasive approaches, but have, um, you know, lower success rates. So just to talk about some of the numbers really quick. So someone who does not have trouble with fertility walking around on the street, who just gets pregnant accidentally, their chance of conceiving is only about 15 to 18% per month. So as humans, we are very inefficient at reproducing. Our chances are never like 50% or 80% or a hundred percent ever per month. It's only about 15% to 20%, you know, at best. So once, once someone makes it to me and they've been trying a year, that chance is really like one to 5%. It has significantly declined. And our goal is to get you back up, you know, to the baseline to about 15 to 18%, which we can do with the less invasive treatments, such as ovulation induction, that would be you know, the, the female patient taking like Clomid or taking Letrozole, taking medicines to boost their ovulation and combining it with either timed intercourse or intrauterine insemination. Um, I, I like to tell my patients that, you know, the lowest least invasive approach would be if you want to just do the ovulation induction, you know, for the female partner and then have, um, you can check ovulation kits at home and then time intercourse based on that. But if we're not really doing much, your success is not really going to be much better. So let's say you've tried for a year and you're not getting pregnant, you know, with just adding ovulation induction, your chances are going to be maybe five to 10% per month. If we add IUI, so if we add insemination, even if there isn't really a male factor identified, there is some kind of like synergy to treating both partners at the same time. And adding IUI can bring you back up to that, like 15 to 18%. If you're, you know, doing both ovulation induction and insemination. Um, but that's still our best. That's the best we get with that treatment plan. And so typically we do those cycles in rounds of like three or four, and then maybe reassess, um, with the doctor, have another meeting. If they want to keep going, maybe do a couple more rounds for a total of like five or six rounds. And if not pregnant, then it's really, you know, cost-effective and kind of statistically probably time to move on to something more invasive like IVF, which, you know, is, is good success. The success rates with IVF, if you have a normal embryo can approach 60 to 70% per embryo of the live birth. So that's really good. You know, that's significantly better than three times better than like the average person on the street. Right. Right. Exactly. Wow it's just getting there. Right. It's a challenge sometimes to get to that normal embryo. Um, speaking of embryos. Okay. That was one question we want to ask was IVF success rates. And so I will, I'll uh, be honest when we, you know, got to the point where it's embryo time, I was like, okay, I want to have twins, Dr. Gunn, like let's put mm-hmm. in two. And she was like, 
No, I think there's a big misconception that um, when you do fertility treatment, the goal is multiples and I'm an identical twin. And so, you know, I had it in my head, like, oh, it'd be so fun to have twins. Now that I, now that I have, I've had two healthy single pregnancies, I cannot imagine having a a twin pregnancy, like, you know, God knows what he's doing, but talk a little bit about um, single embryo transfers and why that is standard of care. And then also while we're talking about transfers, um, why frozen is better. I have my thoughts on why I, mm-hmm. I am biased toward thinking a frozen transfer is better, but I still hear mm-hmm. like, you know, people out in the community or friends that, or, you know, even people I follow online that still do yeah. fresh transfers. And I'm like, mm, I feel like you'd probably have better success with frozen, but I'm not mm-hmm. a doctor. So. Yeah. Okay. So I was actually reading about this the other day. Cause I feel like it's people ask about this all the time I'm and sure. you know, I get it. I mean, if you haven't had a baby for five years and you're going through all this, you're like, I will, I would die to have three babies right now. You know, like I will do anything. I want a baby. So I understand where they're coming from, but the, the reason we do single embryo transfer. So if you have a normal embryo, a euploid embryo, which means that it has all the right chromosomes that the chance of pregnancy with one transferred is about 60 to 70%. If we put two in there, the chance of pregnancy only goes up maybe like 5%. So maybe from like 70 to 75% chance of a pregnancy, but the chance of multiples goes up by 40%. So one, one embryo can still split into two. So one could still be twins. And what if we put two in there and then you have quads and now you're, you know, having a 20 week delivery and have no babies and a TLC show. uh, Exactly. You will end up. (laughs) I don't want, oh, I don't I want just, there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's just not healthy. It's just, yeah. um, but, and what, let's say the first transfer doesn't work. You know, I would like to save those embryos to try again, to have another chance of, of going through a pregnancy rather than putting you through a whole nother IVF cycle and like wasting embryos. Um, also twins, you know, twins are great. They're super cute and it's so fun, but they are not without risk. Right. I mean, any pregnancy is kind of like a, it's a challenge. It's a marathon for the woman's body to go through a pregnancy. But if you put multiples in there, that's just so much more risk. There could be preterm delivery. You could have be in the hospital, half your pregnancy. They could be in the NICU. That's not what we want. We want you to have one healthy baby at a time. So, you know, long story short, one, one embryo being transferred, if it's euploid and normal, if you put two in there, the success really doesn't change. So why not save those embryos for another, another try? Interesting. And then you said the other question was fresh versus frozen. Mm -hmm. Okay. So back in the day, we used to have not the best, um, techniques for freezing embryos. So they would often die, you know, in the process of thawing them, they would be frozen. And then someone would come in and say, okay, I'm ready to have my transfer. And in the thawing process, something would happen and they would not survive the thaw. Oh. Now the, the, which would be awful, right? Yeah. Terrible. Now that's not really the case. Like our, our survival rates are, you know, upper 90, 90, maybe 98%, 99%. It's rare that I hear of an embryo that, you know, doesn't survive the thaw. That's a good quality embryo. And so why not? freeze them and use them when your body is kind of back in a more physiologic state. So you probably know Maggie from your IVF cycle, you can talk about it, how it's just a, it's different, right. than normal, you're pumped full of hormones. Your Mm -hmm. estrogen level is super high. You've gone through this egg retrieval. You're probably having some cramping. Like there's so many things happening that the lining of the uterus changes significantly from all the hormones we've given you. And so it's just not the the most natural state to put an embryo into that. 
right? But if you wait a cycle until you've had a period and all those hormones have kind of cleared your system, and then we kind of slowly add back hormones, it's much more physiologic and more of an appropriate environment for an embryo to survive, um, both from the uterus uterine aspect, but also just hormonally, you're in a more natural state that would support the pregnancy. That's like kind of how it was described to me. And I would say that was the only time I got overwhelmed during my like initial, like, you know, site, my initial IVF cycle was when they gave me the second calendar, Mm -hmm. you know, I knew there was the first calendar. And then when I got the second calendar and it was like, I was having to take estrogen pills every day and, you know, that, I don't know why that overwhelmed me, but I was like, wait, I didn't know there was a second calendar. And so, um, but it makes total sense because I, I do agree. And they, and I had ultrasounds, you know, during that as well. And, you know, my Mm -hmm. lining wasn't quite thick enough. So I, I took more estrogen and it seemed to me, you know, I'm obviously a sciencey person, a biblical person, but very Mm sciencey as well. And it, I feel like it gives you the, gives you all the control to make sure that like lining is like fluffy and happy Mm -hmm. and, um, like as perfect for, you know, your little M baby as possible. So when I hear people doing fresh, I'm like, isn't that kind of old school, but I mean, I don't know. It it just makes more sense to my brain. I guess Um, one reason real quick, one reason to do a fresh transfer would be, let's say your embryos are just good not the best quality. Like, you know, let's say they're, they're not developing like they're supposed to, or the embryologist thinks they're not going to survive all the way out to be frozen. Then sometimes we will do a fresh transfer as kind of like, it's better than them being in the freezer. It's better to be in the uterus. Cause that's like, you know, more hospitable of a home um, for an embryo. And so it's kind of, it's, that is one reason that we would do an, a fresh transfer is if, if they, if you don't think they're going to make it you don't want them to die, you know, that makes in the sense. process. Um, okay. We're getting close to the end. I, I know. Want I want to, there's a couple, you, I want I want you to ask this one, Maggie, about the fertility myth. That was what I wanted to ask okay, you. Good, that was my next question. I'm like, cause everybody oh, wears the pineapple shirts and yes. Allie actually sent me some socks when I was <laughs> doing my transfer. Cause there's like that, the ones that I know about is eat pineapple and then make sure your feet don't get cold and a French fries. Oh, <laughs> I didn't know about French fries, but I, I did do that. I did eat some pineapple because of the bro mm-hmm. meat maybe, but okay. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about some myths and if there's any, if they're really true or not. Oh yeah. I think yes. Like just today I had a patient. She was like, is the reason I'm not pregnant because I don't lay there with my feet in the air for 10 minutes after <laughs> intercourse. And I was like, oh my gosh, like who are, who is teaching people this? <laughs> like also like, what do you know? I mean, how many people do you know that do that? Don't people just like walk around? I don't know. I, but people say that all the time. That's oh. probably the biggest question I get is like, am I supposed to be still like not move for a day or like after an embryo transfer, like, should I be on bed rest for two weeks? And none of that is real. Like, you know, just think about your grandma when she was pregnant, she was not sleeping in her bed all day. Right. She was yeah. up moving around doing her thing. That's what we want you to do. I guess another Another myth is kind of like that, the pineapple one, it's, it's more like voodoo, right? Like everyone wants the best good luck. And so everyone's like covered in pineapple things when they come for their transfers, even Lacey, who's our embryologist, she has like a pineapple hat and socks and we all have pineapple socks now, you know, for, for good luck, good luck measures. So no truth behind it. Just fun, right. Superstitious, I guess superstitions. Um, this is, this one is interesting. I have a lot of male patients who will get put on testosterone by their uh, primary doctors thinking that it will make them 
help their fertility. And it's actually the opposite. So giving testosterone to a man makes them sterile and it's like birth control. And I don't know, I don't know that everyone knows that, you know, I think a lot of primary doctors or even like very educated people, I don't think know that. And so they think, you know, if I get testosterone, I'll be more manly and I'll have better sperm when in fact it makes them sterile. So that's, I guess that's the myth kind of, that's interesting. Tell us um, about how you balance being a working mom. Oh man. I was thinking about this yesterday when I was reading through some questions. Um, I think it takes, you know, it takes a team, right. To, Mm -hmm. to like support you and to also take care of the kids and get all the things done. Like for me, I had my, my first son when I was still in residency and he was three weeks old when I left for fellowship interviews, um, actually at Baylor, which is where I ended up going for fellowship. He was three weeks old. And I remember just being in this like haze of all I could mm. think about was pumping. And, and even during my interview, like someone asked me a question and I was like, where can I go pump? Like, that was all that I cared about. Like, <laughs> all that I, you know, that's where my mind was. Um, but my mom retired and moved in with us and she lived with us the whole first year of his life while I was a crazy resident and, you know, never at home. So I think, I don't think everyone has to have that. Right. But but I do think it's helpful to have kind of a village to support you um, and to, to not be afraid to ask for help from your spouse or from a friend or a babysitter or nanny or grandma, you know, whoever it may be. Um, because I think a lot of times I personally feel guilty that I'm not like doing all the things with my kids all the time. And I, I like really want to be there with them and do all the things, but it's okay to maybe take some time for myself to go work out or I don't know, have some coffee, whatever it may be. Um, they're going to be okay. And it's okay to ask for help from, from people you trust to be there for them. But I think that's been a huge part of how I've made it this far as like my spouse being really helpful and, and having a lot of people around to help me. And my schedule is really great. I think that's another important thing is to advocate for yourself, like, you know, to know what's important to you. I knew that I wanted, I love my job and I love my patients, but I want it to be just one aspect of my life. I want to be able to be a mom and be very present for my kids and, you know, go to the fall festival or whatever it may be, um, to be there with them. And so it was important for me to make sure I worked that into my contract when I started my job to, to value that time. That's so smart. I think that's something that we kind of learn as we go. So like right now in our office, it's so crazy. And so I'm trying to backtrack and try to figure out how to restructure that time. And I feel like if I would have done that from the beginning, it would have been so much better. Yeah, um, you had mentioned self-care. What do you, what do you do for self-care? What does that mean to you? Oh, uh, I'm so bad at it. Okay. So I really need to get better. I, I have a lot of guilt all the time, but who doesn't, oh, you know, me too, like, girl. Oh, I'm in this class, this like leadership class right now. And they talk so much about how like, it's not okay. Like you should feel guilty if you do something wrong, but, but when you're not doing anything wrong, you shouldn't feel guilt. You know, like, I don't know why we feel that as, as moms. I, or and pregnant. you know, it doesn't make sense, but you still feel guilty. Exactly. Right. So I'm bad at self-care, but I would say one of the best things for me is like just working out, like having time to exercise. Cause it helps me mentally. It helps me feel good physically. I feel like if I look good, I feel good. You know, it just, yeah. Um, exercise is one of my biggest things, or I don't know, getting outside in, in nature and like getting some fresh air. That's really helpful. I know she, she of... rocks, she rocks some orange theory workouts. Oh, She'll like I'm post like sweaty, like orange theory. Thing, like, Ooh, you go girl. And I, this so sounds you. like the West <laughs> You're Coast. Always out. I was listening to a podcast about like grounding or just like when you wake up, 
like the idea is, is to have natural light for a couple minutes and have like your feet in grass. I don't know if y'all huh. heard of this. I have heard of that. Yeah. I tried mm-hmm. it for like a week. It, it, I mean, it's pretty legit. Like it's just like, it's so nice. It just sort of gives you a minute to wake up. Cause mm-hmm. normally I'm like, okay, up kids. Like you just like go from zero to a hundred and it's so hard to slow yourself down. And same thing, like when I went, my cortisol levels in the morning were like through the roof. Mm-hmm. And so oh, yeah. I tried that for a week. And I mean, my neighbor probably thought I was bananas, but <laughs> it was really <laughs> nice. So I challenged out there eating that. granola, barefoot, <laughs> armpit hair, all my chin hairs oh, that no. now supposedly oh, I'm man. getting are spewing all over the place. Okay. Last question, Dr. Campbell. Tell where's the Happy Mom podcast? Tell us one thing that's making you happy right now. Um, this fall weather is making me so happy. Oh my gosh. I feel like I could just live outside right now. It's such a nice change. Just breathing in some like cool air, you know, not being super sweaty and stuck in humidity 24 seven. Perfect. I do want to do a quick disclaimer before we close out. This is not medical advice. This is not medical advice. This is just like a conversation with a girlfriend. So I do want to do that disclaimer. Um, so thank you so much, everybody, for listening in. If you have any questions or comments, you can um, DM us at the Happy Mom Podcast or send us an email at the Happy Mom Podcast at um, gmail.com. And we are so grateful that um, Dr. Campbell was here today. And thank you so much. Hope everyone has a great rest of their day. Thank you. Okay, bye.